Hey everyone, welcome to the 56th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Louis Kaye. Louis is arguably the most accomplished doubles coach in the entire world, as he's a member of the ITF Coaching Hall of Fame and has helped Jamie Murray, Joe Salisbury, and Neil Skupski all to the ATP world number one ranking in doubles. On today's episode, we discuss developing confidence, removing fear and anxiety, and the importance of offensive, defensive, and neutral skills. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Louis, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you for hosting me. Oh, this is great. This is a treat for me. And I've had the privilege of interviewing a lot of great coaches and your name is someone, it's something that comes up after every episode. Mark Gellard, uh, I just interviewed Dan Kiernan, and they all go, man, you got to get Louie. Like, you got to find a way. So I actually grew up playing doubles with Rajiv, and he's the one who gave me your contact. So we're thrilled to have you on the pod. Many people are excited about it. And before we get into the on-court ideas, last year after the second U.S. Open, I asked Rajiv, you know, oh, you get to work with Louie. He's got all these great ideas. You know, what is he all about? And the first thing he mentioned was being a performer. So can you kind of elaborate on what that means to you? Well, what I realized over the years, I'll make a, a little detour to answer your question. When I was a young coach, I'm still young, but when I was younger, I thought it was all about knowledge. So I was reading a lot, going to all the conferences. I say, if I'm very knowledgeable, I'll develop top players. And I realized quite quickly that was not enough. I was very knowledgeable, but my players were quite average. Then I say... What are you doing? It's not about informing. It's about forming. So then I started to re uh, read so much on the motor learning and how to develop, you know, open skills and decision making and make it automatic. So it's uh, under pressure. It's robust and it's the tactics first, then the technique after. And I became really, really good at forming people, develop automatic. But it was not enough to develop champion. There are a lot of good players, but not champion. And then I realized. It was not about information, formation. It was about transformation. That if someone, and I took these words from Spain, if they didn't show up on the court with their head, their heart, and their legs, which is more relatable words for an athlete like Rajiv than say, you're mental, you're emotional, and you're physical. Uh, so they relate very well. As, I mean, Rajiv, if your head is not in the match, if your heart is not into it, if your legs energy, you know, like, uh, because sometimes an athlete is a bit flat. There's no point even that I give feedback on your tennis because it's completely irrelevant. So therefore, I say, okay, how do, how do, how do we work with developing a performer? And I realized that if I could not have the skill to transform an identity or a belief, a value, a mindset, an attitude, or any type of mental skills, that I will never develop champions because it's really the performer first and the tennis player second, and really in this order. And the players, because I work quite a lot, like right now, I'm, I'm supervising six teams who have British uh, doubles players, almost in all top 50. And they know that if they didn't perform well, if the performer was not there, we have all the video, all the stats, we won't go through that. And sometimes they even call me when I do remote coaching, we never mind about the magic performer was not there today. So they re they really buy into it. They really know that they have to bring, you know, big performance energy, high positive energy, 
communication. You, if you watch Rajiv, let's go, Joe. Come on, Joe, and all that. And he was not like this before. So I really value the performer. And now I feel more solid as a coach since I inform, form, and transform. I feel I'm more complete and that I could intervene to the level where the player needs the most. But very often, I need to provide a tiny bit of the tree. But uh, what helped me to be even very, very successful was when I started to transform. And uh, that's it. So what do you do as a coach then specifically, or what can a player out there do to improve their ability as a performer? How do you get that out of them? But first, it starts with uh, even work ethic, you know, these values. Like I say, you have to you have to transform their identity, but let's say some belief. In, I'll just talk to you about a few belief and values. First, the value, if you come watch any, and I, the doubles players I work with, even if their coach is not there, you're going to see extreme work ethic. Uh, you won't have, like Rajiv is quite, he's getting older and all this, you'll see him like, Athletic height, very energetic, very focused, very concentrate. They value consistency. They, you, you won't see anything lazy, unforced errors, all that you'll see. Discipline, work ethic, professionalism. And some of the two key va- uh, beliefs, there's more. One, even if it's a cliche, you play your best at the end. You know, you have heard that or when they're going to get tough, the tough gets going. But it's more play your best at the end. And at the end of the training, I finish with attacking shot, like a lot of Spaniards, a lot of players do. And I say, okay, like usual, no, let's finish strong. Finish every training, every set. And the other belief, I don't know if you read the book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. It's the antidote of worry, fear, anxiety, is whatever happened, I can handle it. So let's say we, we fall in the middle of a jungle and you're a survival guy, you know, like you, you know, everything. We fall that, but I'm not so stressed because I know you can handle it. And therefore, but if we both know nothing, then we panic and we worry. So I told them that in three months, whatever happened, they can handle it. So I have a tactical framework. And at some point, say you play altitude, there's a lefty on the outside. They start to love a lot. What will you do? Whatever happened, they they will really have a, a solution. They have patterns. And after a certain time, there's no question you could ask Rajiv that you would not say, but oh, this is what I will do. And that's a very important belief. If you believe that whatever happened, you can handle it and that you always raise your game at the end. It's pretty too strong belief. There's other little belief, uh, like uh, that vocabulary. I, I get that from Anthony Robbins. A rule is a small belief. So let's say, Jonathan, we, we start to travel together. During a dinner, very informal, I say, what does it take, Jonathan, for you to feel confident before a match? So what you're going to tell me are your little rules, your little belief of what needs to happen for you to be confident. Then I look at your rules and I say, which are a small belief. If you have full control of it, if they are easy to access and all this, then fine. But some players say, I have, I have to have win quite a lot lately. I have to play a lot. I don't like to play when there's a blue sky. I don't see the way it has to be cloudy. I don't, they list me sometimes 10 things. And five of them, they have no control and all this. And they're not performing like they, they don't have the result they should be. It's quite obvious for me. It's that how can they be confident when they have so many rules that can be broken? So I will try to find new reference to check the belief that they have no control about it, praise the belief that they have, work on it. And it could take me a month or two, but I will 
change their their mindset and uh, suddenly they will have just empowering belief and uh, that's it and sorry I, I I realize I talk quite a lot hey that's why that's why you're here man no no but I believe in so many things like <clears throat> also for me if I coach you I want to empower you you know we a lot of coaches say that but sometimes they don't talk to empower you so let's say I want to empower you and you're going in a match or that and say Okay, I want you to, you need, you must, you have to, I tell you to, you better do whatever. Compared to Jonathan, when you'll be there, look at the possibility you may consider. It may be preferable. Suddenly, I will influence you a lot. You'll probably do everything I say after. You may choose to do that or a lot or when it happens, look at the possibility to. I will influence you so much. But still, you feel you... You make the decision. I'm empowering you just with the choice of my words. And that's also part of a performer. Or um, let's say you're, instead of being responsible, you're a victim type of guy. Uh, that guy annoys me so much when he takes his time. The referee makes me lose my concentration. So I will say, sorry, uh, we rephrase. Oh, no, not again. Yeah, okay. I lost my concentration when the referee do that. I, I lost my cool when the guy takes his time. Okay, so now that you know you're responsible for the way you feel, you're not the victim, so it's not the guy or the ref who has to change. It's you because you lose your concentration. And then we can have a discussion and you can grow and you can take responsibility, you can get empowered. So these are all the, the tools or the focus, I think, that a coach, if he wants to beat randomness, Beat randomness is being, if you take 10 players, you bring 8, 9, or 10 in the top, not like 1 every 20. So uh, what I feel, what I'm quite proud about my work is I beat randomness. So like in the UK, I took 15 players, and the 15 became top 50, and 3 became number 1, Jamie, Joe, and Neil. So for me, that's beating randomness. So I do something that, that works. So you've worked with so many great players and you just mentioned the world number ones that you helped develop. Is there a common mental skill besides the performer stuff we've been talking about? What is the common de denominator amongst the players who have reached that world number one status? It's hard for me to say confidence because once you play, you cannot say, oh, I'm confident now. Yeah, I think it's to be completely absorbed in the moment. And I make them realize that there are emotions associated with the past. So when you're angry, when you're uh, upset and all this, it's an emotion based on something that happened. When you're anxious, nervous, it's based on something that will happen. So it's an emotion in the future. So I say the emotion of the past and the emotion of the future are not what makes you in the present. So we do a lot of things based on conscious breathing, based on refocusing or, or going to each other or rescuing uh, each other. I remember once in a match for uh, the two guys I coached won the gold medal. Uh, almost the, the full week the training was if you miss the ball Jonathan I had to cross the middle line to go talk to you if I was missing you had to cross the middle line to talk to me we had to rescue otherwise if I miss and go in my corner if you miss you go in your corner if we just go together when we play well and where we ahead then we don't need really the support of each other we're winning easy so when do we need each other it's when things don't go well and this is where Rajiv and Joe are so good. Like in the final of the U.S. Open, they get destroyed 6-2. 
they were struggling with their game, but they stick together, encourage each other, and they know they can raise their game at the end. And they understand a bit the concept of winning ugly. So they'll stick together. And and that ability to stand in the present and do the best you can, I think, is a very, very important quality. It's so easy to get caught in the past or in the future. I know it's a cliche to say stand in the present, but it takes skills and you have to talk about it a lot. The player have to embrace it and develop ritual or routine or communication. And in doubles, it's easier to stand the present than in singles. In singles, there's no one who can rescue you. In doubles, if someone is a bit down, the other one go talk to them and refocus, realign them. I want to talk a little bit about Joe because when I coached at Duke University on the men's side for 10 years, I remember watching him when he played for Memphis and he was at a tournament and he was a fine doubles player, but there was nothing about him that was screaming future world number one, three time in a row US Open champion. So what did you see in him? And then what have you guys worked on and developed over the years that have made him kind of make that leap? Well, first, he's a great athlete. You know, he has legs like, like this and an upward body like that. <clears throat> so he's very explosive. So one thing is, first, the double British system, which I call it like this, British double system, is based on making you miss. So if you play a Brit, they don't try to kick you out of the court, Jonathan, if you're a good player. They, they don't pretend they're going to save aces, that they're going to return winners, that everything they touch, they can out, out hit you. Uh, but what they will do, though, and they're all skillful at that, they're going to make you try loopers and take shot. So because of their position, very, very cheating, squeezing the middle, you feel you have to return angle, hard down the line. And when the ball comes very fast and you feel you have no place to hit, you try harder, you miss a lot, then you can get, not absolutely, but negative because you miss. And then we start also to move a lot, to poach, to create uncertainty. Uncertainty create anxiety. Then because you start to become anxious, you get some muscle tension. Then you lose a bit of your coordination. Then you start to miss more. Then you start to get pissed. Then it's over. And the, the main game plan that I say, the reason why I think you're going to win 52% of the point is if you look at all the results, it's, it's always 51, 52% of the point those who win. And if you win 55 or 58, you won 6-2-6-1. And if you won 6-8, it was one in love. And so it's it's about 52%. So you have to be really, really clear. And I like to do the marginal gain and everything. So every trading, and this is capital because a lot of coaches don't do that, doubles coach. Every training, I train the serve, server the server's partner, both at the net, the returner, the returner partner, and sometimes both at the back because almost 80% of the team now play both back. So to have patterns of that. And every drill has an offense, neutral, and defense component. So let's say just a approach volley. At the beginning, to warm you up, I send you kind of easy ball. You come, you step in, you look great. Then I send neutral ball, a bit more challenging. And then I hit the ball as hard as I can, really tough angle, and you have to, you know, like uh, scrape a ball there and recover emergency. If you're at the net, service partner, some easy ball that you clean easy, some neutral, little stretch, little low, and some really, really fast, just blast the ball at you. So every day they practice their defensive skills and their offensive skills. And most of the team, they practice mostly neutral. They rally, do that, they come at the net, a long warm up, 
or just rally to each other. They don't really systematically practice to be under attack. And if you do like a shot after the return, I think sometimes an easy first volley, a neutral one, and a very, very difficult one. So it's always like this. And that develops more automatic technique, skills, and patterns in all phases of play. And even if it's a simple concept, like when I talk to you, it's, it's, it's obvious, but you may think of the last practice you've seen or have done, and you may not see that you, you didn't do that. So it's a very, very important uh, This And Joe went through all that process, understanding that was at... No, no, don't get me wrong. He can serve well. He can play well. But he will... He doesn't go there to kick you out of the court. He do there to impose his game style. And he knows that he's going to force you to do a lot of low percentage shot and create uncertainty. And, and he will bring variation. So he will create uncertainty with mixing up his shot and mixing up his movement. So you cannot do... a a set play against him. One common uh, question I get on Instagram is people kind of say they're up at the net. They'd like to be offensive, but their recreational partner doesn't have an effective serve. Yeah. And so they feel like they're on defense a lot. What is your best advice when you find yourself in that situation, when your partner doesn't have a serve that really allows you to be on offense very often? Okay. So when, who do you need more a good servers partner? The one who have a great serve or the one who doesn't have a great serve? So then I say, develop your defensive skills. Make yourself in a position where the guy feel you take a lot of place and make them feel that they have to beat you in the tram line or this. And after a while, also, you're going to start to anticipate. If the ball is very close to you, then you cannot hit in the, on the do side. You cannot hit in the tram line. So you squeeze. If you see him on purpose, let the ball come beside him. And so obviously, he's going to hit line. You can squeeze. So the one who serve the least good needs the best server's partner. So stop blaming him or change partner. But if you stay stay with him, like Rajiv is an excellent, you see him play, finish the point, bing, bang, bang. But Joe was not the biggest server. Joe serve, start to serve bigger. We serve often 115, 117 as Rajiv served 122, 125. So when the ball comes to Rajiv, even if it's hard, you just deflect it. So Joe always serve a lot because he has one of the best servers partner. But for those who say, I'm not good at the net, so what should I do? <clears throat> I cannot save the show. I give permission to the players. Uh, you know, at the baseline, the singles players, when they are offense, they say close to the baseline or a bit inside. When they rally like a meter or two behind the baseline and in defense, they, they stay far back. And if you watch uh, Medvedev or... Oh, oh, whatever, all these guys, when they're on defense, they're far back. So in doubles, is the same thing. And I have video clips of the Bryans and all this. So in offense, they're on top of the net. Neutral, like in the wall, they're midway. And when they give a very easy ball, the guy will move in to attack. They, they back up closer to the service line. So if I would have a club player, I would say at the sound of the serve, instead of getting close to the net, especially on second serve, stand the wall. And if you want to back up a tiny bit, you can, because your partner, if they hit hard at him, will have more chance to lob back or hit back than if they hit hard at you, because it's tough when someone hit hard at you to make like a great volley, but it's easier on the baseline. So I will give them the permission, uh, instead of saying chicken, to say, you're right, you're in defense, so cover a bit more your line, stay a bit back. So if they hit at you, 
you'll you'll have less court to cover and you'll be able to defend better. But mostly, you want that they hit to your partner, so the person will have more chance with their ground strokes to make a better shot. Is there so we're practicing offensive, neutral, defensive skills? We know we're going to be in those three situations. Is it possible? I'm speaking mainly to recreational, but I'm curious actually about the pro as well. You're talking about creating stress, putting yourself in position, causing chaos and anxiety on the other side of the net. Can you be a very consistent, successful team if your primary way of winning points is defensive, or do you need to be offensive and neutral as often as possible? It's hard to win. Doubles if you're defense because if your return are only defensive and you block cross court, you're going to get poached all the time. You need some pace. And if you love all the time, these guys at the pro level have a good smash. So they, they won't close the net. They will just let you defend in the smash, smash, smash. If you love, they don't always win the point on smash, but they will, normally they win about 80%. So if you win 52, you win the match. So you, you have no, not really. A good chance. Now, I understand recreational level. If they love a lot, they may be a big pain uh, somewhere. So, but at the pro level, you cannot. You can love, but not uh, just defend. Even at the net, if you just defend, they'll keep hitting, and suddenly the ball will be too easy. So you need to look to attack, counter attack, and put people in neutral. And in doubles, compared to singles, if you receive a neutral shot. Like, let's say I serve and you rally to me because I don't have to move. I'm going to look to attack that your rally shot for two reasons. Because I don't have to recover. I don't have to move. The ball comes to me. And also is to set up my partner. I don't want to get into a rally cross court because my partner, you know, has nothing to do. has to protect his down the line. So I will look to attack you as soon as I can. And then my partner will get very close to the net. And then you'll have to lob, but it's not so easy to lob when you receive a fastball. You can miss the lob, the lob could be short, or if you try to make a great lob, you can lob long. So I'll look at, at today of the stats, for example, of uh, Joe Salisbury, because we talk about him. All last year when he lobbed, he won 18% of the point when he lobs, which is not good enough. <laughs> not good enough. But when he return, for example, a jump back end, he won 34% on the return of first serve. And the objective is to win 30. Because if you win 30, a bit more than 30, let's say 31, that means you won only 69% on your first serve. Because doubles players, we aim to win like around 80. So the lob didn't get the job done, but his return get the job done a tiny bit more. So it's hard to be a great, great defender and succeed. So it's about playing, not just hitting. Love it. We're going to finish with Instagram questions. These are from followers who wanted to pick your brain. Uh, the first question they had, what is something you've learned and know now that you didn't know or had a different opinion of when you were a younger coach? Depends. On what the, let's say, okay, tactical level, okay? Tactical level. Yeah, you already mentioned transformational. Tactical level. Like uh, about 10 years ago, a guy like Cal Inman, if you ask him, do you play doubles? Uh, yeah, but I don't play proper doubles. I stay back. There was about 10% of the players serving in stay back. In my time in Canada, there was everybody serving volley. If you serve in stay back, say, what's wrong with you? Then after that, 10%. And now it's about 55 to 60% to serve and stay back. So one, like five years ago, we had a, a meeting with the, all the Brits, training camp. It was all to beat these 
damn singles players whose servants say back and walk the ball, who play both back on return and walk the ball. So we develop a lot of rules, never two foreign in a row. The guys search, uh, do this, do that. So we had a lot of uh, tactics on how to beat the singles players and those who serve and stay back. Because now it's, uh, I tell you, in the top 100 players, about 60%. And I will say 85% of the teams stay both back on return for first serve. And before, if you were not standing on a service line, you say, ah, chicken, chicken. You know, there was all these stuff. So the game has changed a lot. On the technique, I start to improve my teaching of defensive skills. So I realized that it was all went with my hand instead of the racket. That it was a bit stupid to prepare and then try to block in front. You know, like if you catch with your bare hand, you will move forward and then open your hand. So I start to make the players do the same thing, move forward with the racket, and they open like this. So it's it's very, very short because the ball takes 0.4 seconds to come. So you need a technique that takes 0.2 because you need 0.2 to judge. So if you have a technique that takes 0.5 seconds, it's too slow. So I've developed a, a lot of uh, ways to develop every skills in defensive much better because in offensive, it's quite easy normally. I mean, not easy, but it was to be, how great will you be in defense? And I, I do a lot of uh, defensive skills. And I would, I think I could say that our players are great defense. So now I say you don't win with defense, but it's different. I, uh, for me, defending is when the ball comes hard that you do something with it. Or one way to express it is the do-nothing volleys. So look, look where is my hand. It's like my racket. So you hit the ball very hard and I make a winner out of it. So I improved the tactics, improved the technique, and every every week I learn a new book on transforming people. So I think gradually, it's it's not like a big stage, I become more skillful dealing with more different situations at the performer level. This next question is from a coach, and they want to know how you handle resistance points with a player when you might be giving them information or a tactic or working on their technique and they're a little resistant at first, how do you kind of work through that to get them to kind of buy into the program? In the past, I think, I don't know if you see me use uh, the ropes uh, for tactics. And so I, I was having that problem all the time. And like the first time Andy, I, I gave a doubles lesson to Andy Murray, he gave me the John McEnroe line, you must be kidding. I was co- I was telling him that, when you poach on a wide serve, you don't cross the middle line. And for them, they, instead of calling that poach, we're called that crossing. So crossing means you cross. And me, I say, no, you don't cross, you stay inside. You must be joking. So I brought the ropes and I told him, okay, where will the ball pass if it goes there? If you poach with the ball, I know a lot of questions. Put the ropes where he tell me. Then put markers on the ground and you say, oh, yeah, you're right. So I did. But you have to come with facts. You have to, uh, you know, when I say my tactics is how to win 52%, I make them themselves look of all the outcome and they realize it's 51, 52. So I use facts and I use like ropes and I use video and I don't uh, necessarily say, hey, I'm the coach, do what I say, I know what I'm doing. If they have doubts, I will say, what make you say that? What make you hesitate? And sometimes you'll say something that I say, okay, I see where you're coming from. 
Or I say, yeah, that's a quite good idea. You know, Rajiv once say, but Louis, I prefer to do that for this reason. Yeah, yeah you're right. So we'll, from now on, you're going to do this and stuff like this. So, so you have to be open. You have to listen. You have to say what makes you say that. And remember, people will uh, listen to you if they feel you listen to them. If they feel understood, then when you talk, they will listen. So the first rule is, if they don't agree on that, listen to them. Do active listening, repeat, say, did I understand you well? Okay, now this is for me why I would prefer you do that. And then they will listen. And then bring facts, uh, rope, videos, and stuff, I guess. And, and try to not impose, but find a way to to explain it in the way that they do this. Do you have advice? I'm not sure how involved you are with matching up uh, the pros that you work with, but what one matching? recreational play, uh, ma- matching up with a partner. Okay. Like, okay. Who, who would be good together? And that's something that obviously a lot of league, USTA league members, they have to do, right? Like we've got to figure out who's going to play with each other on the team. What is your best advice for how to find a good match in a doubles partner? Okay. So I go a lot with personality and uh, thing game style, but with the Brits, I have to say to the, uh, the the truth, I always try to find a better partner than their level. So when I I choose, when I convince Rajiv to play with Joe, but Rajiv was better than Joe. That's uh, now they're equal, they're a good team. But at the beginning, Rajiv is older by five years, I think. So he was more experienced. He played singles like 50. He, he was a better player. So he said, I'm not sure if I should play with Joe. Then I show him everything we had to offer. You know, we have all the PBI. We have so much stats and video and analysis. And uh, I offer also myself as experience. So, and uh, anyway, so I tried to convince good player like I had Max Birney playing with uh, Jamie Murray when Jamie was 21. Max Birney was a previous one. So that's my job. Try to find better partners. Then I look at styles. So, on. but when I was, because you talk about recreational level, I was coaching a really interclub. There was a league in Montreal where there were over, I don't know if they still exist, over 2,200 ladies playing every Friday morning. So that was huge. So I realized quickly when I was putting two doubles players together, they were losing. When I put a single player and a double player, that was magic. So I started to combine singles and doubles. And then I realized, I think in 2017, the three teams in the semifinal were the first time they played together, and it was a single player and a doubles player. So if I was, long time I've coached recreational player, but if I was going back in a club and my reputation is at stake and I want to really develop a team, my first reaction will go for a singles and a doubles player. Last question of the day. This is the most important Tough to bottle it up into one thing, but what would your best advice be for the 4-0 recreational doubles player? If you could only give them one tip to leave them with. Wow. Only one. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone has trouble with it. It's tough. Yeah, yeah, but my my first rule anyway with the pros are find the best partner available. So that will be good. And then I say, be that partner. (laughs) Be the one that everybody wants to play. And I just look at the video, Dan Kiernan, you say, send me a a code to look at uh, Nash when he received two uh, most valuable player MVP. And it was like, he was known to be the one who did the most contact in one match 
he would touch his partner high five dude 250 times so i do believe in peak performance state which is high positive energy and to i would like to tell them remember that you can win because right now in short term like next week two weeks you won't change all your technique and your tactics but you can change who you are on the court and you can change the quality of partnership that you bring to your partner to make them feel great and always encourage. And just with that, already you win more matches. So that's a very short-term cue. Then second, practice your offense and defense in every situation, whatever your level is. Great advice. Louis, like I said, this is a total treat for me. I've seen every YouTube video, every conference you've given I love learning from you. This is super special for me. And I know people out there would have gotten a lot from this episode. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Jonathan. All the best. All right. I want to thank Louis for coming on the show today. He is literally a coaching legend. I actually walked by him on the street in New York once at the US Open and instinctively yelled hello since I've seen so many of his videos and just think I know him. And he looked at me like I was crazy, which was totally fair. I've already re-listened to this episode multiple times and really can apply almost everything he spoke about to my coaching. Particularly, I really like how he helped build confidence in his players. Finding what your rules or beliefs are can really help build confidence. Knowing you have a solution for anything that pops up will also give you confidence. So take some time, think about controllable rules or beliefs that you may have that you can execute on a daily basis, maximize your confidence and abilities, and begin to play the way you know that you're capable of. As a reminder, next week is our first real bonus subscriber-only episode. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you'll simply be able to click on our Apple homepage to subscribe with a seven-day free trial. If you don't use Apple, there's a link in the show notes to subscribe through Captivate with a seven-day free trial as well. Subscribers will not only get 30 bonus episodes this year, they'll be receiving special promotions throughout the year as well. I hope you all give this a try. I think you'll find a ton of value that will help your game or your coaching.